Uh, Dodi, so it kind of feels, knock on wood, that we might be coming out the other end of this pandemic. What do you think? Well, we should all still be careful, but sure, with that third jab in in my arm and uh, with uh, uh, relaxed regulations in various European countries, I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, we don't want to jump the gun, but I thought it might be a good time to just think a little bit about some of the big tough questions that we faced, you know, through the pandemic, Um, because as we come towards the end of it, I think we've learned a lot about access to healthcare and health inequity. Okay, so big serious topic, no puns today. No puns. um, And I think we're just going to dig into some of, you know, maybe the ethical considerations around how we get vaccines to all the billions of people that really, really need them. And I guess that's what matters on today's episode of Discovery Matters. Connor, what sparked the topic for this episode, vaccine inequality? Yeah, I mean, you know, Dodi, I was born in in what was Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, and and I have family all over Southern Africa. So I've got a real connection um, to the continent. It feels like my spiritual home, uh, despite the fact that I can't get back there enough. And at the beginning of the vaccine rollout for the COVID pandemic, um, it was clear that the Global South had made you know, lots of contributions, whether it would be in clinical trials and was starting to look at manufacturing and so on. But when vaccines started being distributed, do you remember the big furore around access in sure. non-rich countries, in the lower middle-income countries? Right. You know, Africa kind of was bottom of the list. And I wanted to understand this better. So I met with two experts on vaccine inequality and distribution and access to medicines. And I'm just really excited to introduce you to them. My name is Linda Gale Becker. I'm the director of the Desmond Tutu HIV Center and um, also run a foundation known as the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation here in Cape Town in South Africa. So I spoke to Linda Gale about the state of response to both COVID and HIV in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Of course, it's another communicable disease. Yes, so the COVID-19 epidemic has been no less severe or devastating here in in the tip of Africa as I think it has been around the world, perhaps more so because we also battle other communicable diseases such as HIV and TB. And we have a huge proportion of of non-communicable diseases, particularly amongst the young poorer individuals, so people of low socioeconomic status. So it's a, a multi-morbidity. And look, virus epidemics are not new for people living in Africa. I remember as a child traveling around the continent, having to travel with a World Health Organization vaccine passport, little yellow thing or orange thing. um, And it listed all my vaccinations and it was checked at every border crossing uh, and it slipped inside my my passport. Absolutely. Africa. Yeah. Our family lived in Latin America. We also have those you know, yellow passports. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I, I kind of giggled as people sort of thought how, you know, challenging it would be to have vaccine passports in, in, in Europe and North America when, you know, lots of countries live with them already. These countries live with communicable diseases as part of their health challenges every day. 
And this has transported us all, you know, many decades back in so many ways. I am an HIV TB infectious diseases specialist. So I've been particularly concerned about the impact on the progress we've made in HIV and TB. And definitely we have seen an impact on these other epidemics, which too often are forgotten. Um, and I think have been particularly overlooked during the last 18 to 20 months of the last pandemic. So how did these two affect each other? What did the pandemic mean for the Desmond Tutu HIV Center, for example? Well, Linda Gale says that when the lockdowns kicked in, all HIV testing, all the tuberculosis referrals dried up overnight. And they took a really long time to come back. And I think this was a mixture of fear of contagion so people, you know, didn't want to come to clinics, number one. Number two, they were so fearful they were going to actually be given a COVID diagnosis, which, you know, meant all kinds of things. I was going to be spirited off to some quarantining hospital. And if I went into that hospital, I probably would never come out again. So it kind of goes without saying HIV, TB, COVID-19, they're not comparable, but they have an effect on each other. Almost 80 million people have been infected with HIV, which really is a lifelong sentence, unlike COVID. And 35 million people have died, yeah, admittedly over a 40-year period, which might make it feel somewhat different. But certainly in this country, where we have almost 8 million people infected with HIV, living with HIV, um, you know, it's been devastating. And look, the annual deaths from other communicable diseases are really important here. So let's get into some numbers, Dodi. Sure. I'm here on the World Health Organization website, who.int. And in the year 2020, more than 2 million cases of malaria, 627,000 deaths. And shockingly, 80% of those deaths were children under five. When it comes to tuberculosis, 1.5 million people died and 214,000 of those deaths were HIV positive people. So the annual death rate from these diseases really went up as well because of the pandemic. And because the Global North was so heavily affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, it warranted such aggressive action that perhaps was missing when we were talking about HIV and tuberculosis. What has happened with COVID is you've had pharma, you've had industry, you've had academia, you've had governmental, non-governmental, all coming to the party to say, how can we solve this problem? In the most extraordinary collective, you know, somewhat organized, but nevertheless, still, it's felt at times, I think, a little bit like a feeding frenzy. But in, but look what we've achieved through that. You know, it's, it's, it's terrific. Whereas HIV, you know, by comparison with TB, has had the lion's share. But it is, you know, again, orders of magnitude less than we've seen for COVID. And then TB and malaria are just sitting way behind uh, in that regard. So Linda Gale said that the role of governments has to be critical in managing epidemics. Here in this country, I think we got a little more traction eventually once we got past our denialism of the turn of the millennium. We had a, unfortunately an administration that did not believe in, in a virus causing a terminal illness. Um, and, you know, once we got beyond that, then we did see quite an amazing 
sort of population-based response. But even still, we tend to see the bulk of the HIV in poor communities. You know, those who are rich could either be covert about it or, you know, again, sweep it under the carpet to an extent. And sometimes it falls on the shoulders of entrepreneurs to help improve access to healthcare. My name is Lenius Wenda. I am the founder and CEO of Medicines for Africa, a startup social enterprise that has a passion for making a difference through a sustainable business model with a social impact. Ah, okay. Hi. What exactly does Medicines for Africa do? Well, Lenius told me that they are real problem solvers. We solve the problem that quality treatments that are needed to meet the, the very basic needs of populations are consistently not available where they are needed, when people need them. And often when they are available, they are too costly and the quality is not certain. So our mission is to improve the 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 consistent availability of medicines of proven quality at prices that are affordable to, to buyers and in particular to patients because that's whom we exist to serve. So Lenius is from Zimbabwe um, and she's an immunologist by background and she realized that the challenge was actually getting products uh, that already exist to the people who need them most. And this is what drove her into policy work. It was discovering that the issues of access to treatments, to medical products that my community in Zimbabwe experienced whilst I was a child were not particularly or primarily because there were no treatments available to, to tackle those issues. It was really sort of growing up and discovering that part of the challenge was actually getting products that already exist, that we have, and at times that are not particularly expensive, but not getting them to the people that need them, when they need them, or at a price that, that allows them to be able to access those products. And so I realized that with that challenge, in fact, that was a bigger part of the challenge. And so being interested in having an Im immediate impact in people's lives, in, 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 in communities, this really started to shift my interest towards the, the policy making side of things to understand how the rules of how products are distributed around the world to, to low and middle income countries, to all countries. Lenius told me that one of the things that Medicines for Africa does is to get out of the office and actually visit as many countries all over Africa as they can. We've been all over the continent in Ghana, in Kenya, in Zimbabwe, uh, South Africa, Botswana. And there they talk to the people on the ground to really get a firm grip on what the real issues are that people are dealing with with respect to getting access to medicines. So cost is certainly a big issue that, you know, 
you know, on a continent where most people are paying out of pocket, the cost at which people are, uh, you know, at which medicines are being brought to them is so high that it's eroding household income and, and really contributing to the problem of poverty, driving families deeper into poverty. And according to the WHO, half the world lacks access to essential health services and 100 million people are sinking deeper into poverty every year due to the need to pay for medical expenses out of pocket. Besides cost, what are some of the others? Well, what she said was that supply chain, believe it or not, is the biggest issue. Part of the challenge is the, the, the complexity of the supply chain, how some supply chains are structured, the division of labor between the private sector, the public sector, the, the, the donor-driven sector where you have uh, bilateral partners bringing in partners, uh, uh, products, where you have so many people who are operating in this environment, each one with their own system, and those systems aren't really talking to each other to make sure that things are done in, a, in an efficient timely, cost-effective way that truly saves the patient. So you have quality issues also that are arising with, with, with anti-malarials in particular. I think it's funny how supply chain has become a topic around our kitchen tables. I mean, thanks in large part to the COVID pandemic. Here it is affecting more health issues. And to top it off, Lenias explained that there are huge problems across the continent with substandard and counterfeit medicines. According to the WHO, 10% of medical products that are circulating in low and middle income countries are substandard and falsified. And that's to do with the regulatory environment, the infrastructure that is available to provide oversight to make sure that the medicines that are coming in are coming from verified sources. They are they have proven quality and we know that they do what they are supposed to do. The supply chain issues include you know, the physical infrastructure, countries not having adequate physical infrastructure for, for, for bringing in medicines, not having efficient systems for procuring medicines. What are some possible solutions? Well, for example, you could have a sort of an A to Z system within countries. So local manufacturing, rather than having this large, slow manufacturing global system um, that you basically have in-country, for-country manufacturing. So the control of the supply chain is, is basically inside the country where the medicines are used. An example of a country that has done very well in this is South Africa. They have consolidated the way they are buying medicines in the market. And I think that that's really helped in terms of improving the availability of medicines and, and controlling the cost to patients, the cost at which patients are actually accessing those medicines. And what they've done, one of the things they've done is they provide framework contracts in the way they buy. So they're buying long-term. They don't buy every six months or every year. They provide a framework, framework contract to suppliers who then know that they have to supply this product at these timelines to South Africa. And that brings predictability to, to the supply chain, making sure that medicines are available when they needed and where they're needed. 
And now if we get back to Linda Gale at the Desmond Tutu HIV Center, it's important to recognize that the way in which COVID-19 was tackled was predicated on our response to HIV. We learned from the HIV epidemic. So we may have learned something. It's nice to have learned something, isn't it? While we busy unlearn mm. things over and over again. Every day is a school day. Yeah. The same clever people in laboratories who were trying to solve the HIV problem and the RSV problem and the other pathogens trying to find vaccines could pivot and take a lot of that technology immediately forward to solve the, the COVID problem. And, you know, I've followed people like Barney Graham and the guys at the VRC and others. I mean, they're, they're not the only people who immediately were able to say, well, let's take all this cachet of information, lessons learned, and, and applied to this problem. So Linda Gale says that this essentially gives her hope. It gives me hope too. I totally get it. So having that kind of rapid response to a new pathogen would be exciting and important and would be proof of having applied what we learned from the past. So... Unfortunately, there's still this huge imbalance in terms of the power of nations, and Lenius referred to this as a lack of bargaining power. We've seen the most powerful countries, we've seen vaccine nationalism, we've seen export bans, we've seen vaccine hoard hoarding, we've seen unfair distribution practices. So these are just a fact of life. When people have control of manufacturing, what I believe is really needed is having a globally distributed manufacturing cap capability where you have all regions having some level of significant manufacturing capacity so that when you have an emergency such as this, mm -hmm. you have all regions being able to, to at least produce some and, and their advantages for everybody, this would benefit everybody, all the countries in the world. And the imbalance between, you know, what we now call the global north and the global south or wealthy countries and lower and middle income countries is something that Linda Gale is really keen to get across when she thinks about HIV. Sadly, it feels very deja vu because we were here 25, 30 years ago with antiretrovirals. We haven't stop that epidemic yet. Um, luckily and thankfully and miraculously and through lots of advocacy and activism, we do now have some of the most affordable drugs in the world and we are able to access the treatments. But, you know, move forward 20 years and we're doing exactly the same with vaccines. Uh-oh, a minute ago I felt hopeful and now uh, she says it feels deja vu and maybe we haven't learned. But is it is it that that different approach can come in the form of equitable access? Let's bring us back up. I'm getting whiplash now. Hopeful. We're not learning. We are learning. I know. It, it's... It, it, but look, this is how the world goes, right? It's cyclical. You learn and there are setbacks and so on. But look, there certainly is hope. I just love the resilience and the innovation that comes out of, uh, you know, anywhere where c resources are constrained. It's one of the most extraordinary things that you see in humanity is that when resources are really tight, really constrained, innovation thrives. People find a way. And I love this. And I love seeing this in Africa. Sure. What we've learned, I think, in this episode is innovation thrives 
We are learning from the past and actually governments are coming in and doing what they can to be productive. And there are global concerns where we actually do unite for the improvement of human health. It is. And the truth, however, remains that we can always do more. That we can always do more to be more fair, that we can do, we can do more to treat um, all nations around the world equally, because we know an epidemic or a pandemic anywhere in the world is a threat to everyone in the world. So it's not over until it's over for everyone. So with that, our executive producer is Andrea Killen, and this podcast is produced with the help of Bethany Grace Armit Brewster. Editing and mixing is by Tom Henley and Banda Productions. My name's Connor McCachney. And I'm Dodie Axelson. Make sure you rate us on Spotify or whichever platform you use to listen to us. We'll see you when we come back with another episode of Discovery Matters. Thank you for listening.